You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, I'm Brian. As he said, if I haven't met you, I'd love to. There's some good things happening here down front, and we're just going to keep doing what we feel like God maybe is leading us to in this moment. But if you feel called at any point to come down here, that's awesome. If you have Bibles with you, Philippians chapter 2, page 831. If you have a little Bible in front of you you want to grab, that's fine too. We're in the story, in this series, a story we find ourselves in. And and what I'm going to suggest today is actually that there are a number of stories that were told. But I actually believe that there's really only one story that matters, the one story that we really find ourselves in. But today in particular, I want to talk about one of those other stories that we get told quite often that I actually believe is sort of permeates all kinds of culture, all kinds of places. And so I want to hopefully help us see that a little bit and then talk a little bit about the story we actually find ourselves in. But first, we will step into Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Let's pray together. God, we do welcome you to this place. We just acknowledge that you are who you say you are. God, in the midst of our busyness, in the midst of all the things going on in our hearts and our minds, God, I pray that you would help us to be here. pray that you would speak through me, and I pray that you would soften our hearts. And so we invite the true teacher, your Holy Spirit, to come and teach. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Yeah, so we're kind of, to help us see the kind of two stories that I think are contrasting themselves to find the story that culture tells us that we're actually in. I I was trying to think of of something that would maybe all of us in this room had experienced, which is really difficult because we come from a wide variety of places and experiences. And I remembered that sort of misery loves company. And so what's something that would bring us, we all have experienced that maybe wasn't so great. Something that a lot of us maybe have repressed in some way, we've pushed down. And that's right, I'm talking about middle school. Yes, that's right, yeah. So something begins to happen in our bodies when we reach middle school. No, this isn't that talk. Some of you are like, oh, this is going to be good. And others of you are like, no. Uh, If you've been around a long time, there will be no steps or ladders referenced in this message today. What does happen is when we're children, we kind of see ourselves as the center of the universe. And so when we're children, everything we think revolves around us. We are the center. We are everything. And then what begins to happen is when we reach around middle school age, something begins to change in our brain. I have a friend, he studies brains, and he talks about it like this. When you're a child, it's like you're in this room all by yourself, and it's great because everything is your way, and you might have a couple windows in your room, and in those windows, you can look out and maybe see your parents, maybe your friends, but that's pretty much it. And then what he says is when you reach about maybe halfway through fifth grade for girls, usually a little later for boys, what happens is it's like somebody starts opening all these windows and doors, 
And we start seeing all of these other people out there all around us. And you guys probably remember this to some degree if you haven't repressed it too far. And part of what happens is we start seeing everybody else and we start noticing things about them. And then what we do is we start comparing ourselves to everybody else. So it sort of looks like this. We start looking around and we say, oh, that person's taller than me. I wish I was maybe a little taller. Oh, that person's faster than me on the playground. I wish I was faster. That person can sing better. That person is more intelligent than me or does better on quizzes or whatever else it is. And so we do this comparison and competition thing. And what we're told very quickly is that what matters most is that we be in the in group, right? That there's a group of people that have influence and have power and have resources and there's honor there. And what we want, whether we even realized it before this or not, what we want is to be inside the in-group. And then, of course, if there's an in-group, there also has to be an out-group, right? People that are on the margins. And so what we begin to see is most of us, we begin to realize around middle school that there's people inside the group and then there's people outside the group. And for most of us, we wind up being on the margins. We're on the outside. We don't feel like we fit in. We begin to recognize that we don't have what it takes to be like those people. And so we're told we should want to be in and we should do everything we can to get in. But the reality is most of us find ourselves out. And then to add to the sort of trouble of middle school age is this. We begin to realize that there's more than one group. There's maybe a group of athletes that I want to be part of. And then there's a group of academics I want to be a part of. Maybe a group of musicians. And all of a sudden I realize that not only can I not be in one group, there's a whole bunch of groups and I'm out of all of those groups. And so it feels like we're alone. It feels lonely. It feels like we're isolated. It feels like nobody else really gets us. And so we're trying to play this game of competition and comparison. Now I'm going to tell you a secret. It's not really a secret. You already know it, but I just want to make sure we're clear that this game of who's inside and who's outside the group, who's, who's in the center and who's on the margins, that game doesn't end at middle school, does it? Keeps going. In fact, throughout all of history, people have done all kinds of things, terrible things to one another, from racism to war and so forth, because some of them wanted to be in and some of them didn't want others to be inside the group. And so they've done all kinds of things throughout history to sort of keep that from happening. And then what we begin to see is all of us are in this place where we're trying to get into the middle. I have a friend who's a migrant during the Korean War, and he talks about it like this. He says that there were groups of people who were trying to, to migrate from what we might now call North Korea to the South. And part of what happened in the midst of that war is they would bomb some of these people groups, these groups of people trying to move to somewhere where it was safe. And he says, as we were traveling in these big groups of people, when the bombing runs would start to happen, we would just cluster close together. And then he said, well, nobody told us this, there was nothing that was ever discussed, but instinctually we knew that we wanted to be in the center of the group. And so we would fight and claw our way, you can kind of picture this, into the middle of this cluster of people. And then as soon as we got to the middle, somebody else would begin to pull us and push us, and we wind up on the outside. And this is exactly what it feels like for most of us. We feel like we're always trying to get into the inside of whatever group. And the reality is we're never quite there and we're always pulled away and pulled out. And so we feel lonely and isolated. A recent study from Boston University said that college students in the United States right now, two-thirds of all college students struggle with feelings of loneliness and feeling isolated. All-time highs. And in case that perhaps maybe we think, well, that's, that's at Boston University or, or where they're talking about all over the U.S., maybe state schools, that's not here at Asbury. We have our groups too, don't we? Now, there's nothing wrong inherently with having a group of people. 
But what happens is for most of us, what happens is we begin to focus inward and we use those groups to begin to compete and to compare ourselves with everybody else. So we have groups like we have dorms like Johnson and Trustees and Kresge and GC and Aldersgate and Commuters. And we have all of that. And we have halls on, on our dorms and we have certain identity that come with that. And we know, though, here's the thing, even here at Asbury, that in the midst of those groups, there are people who are insiders and then there are people who are on the margins. So whether you're an athlete or a non-athlete, whether you're part of a specific team or not, you know what it's like when there are insiders and you don't feel like you're an insider. Whether you have a long email signature or whether you're part of student congress or something, or whether you are a media comm major, an equine major, or anything in between, whatever it might be, we have these groups and we often find ourselves trying to get to the inside. We start looking around and comparing and competing and comparing and competing. And so we're lonely and isolated, which leads to this question. What if it doesn't have to be that way? What if this story that culture tells us that we have to fight to be inside, that we always should be comparing ourselves, that we always should be competing? What if that story isn't actually right? Do we really have to play that game? Which brings us to Jesus. <laughs> Some of you in here might say, you know what? I don't really have faith in Jesus. I don't really care about that. Stay with me for one minute. Because I want to talk with you just for a moment, not about the church, not about formal Christianity, not about Asbury. I just want to talk about the person of Jesus. And here's one of the things that's interesting. For thousands of years, people of faith and non-faith have been fascinated with this person of Jesus because he has refused to play the game. He's refused to value people by whether they're inside or outside the group. You can look at this throughout history. People have been fascinated by Jesus' choice. We just read in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus tells us that he chose, he was in heaven, and he chose to move away from that to the margins, to where we are out of love. Scripture tells us this over and over again. So if you do feel lonely today, and I have a hunch, no, I know that some of us in this room feel lonely and isolated on the outside. If that's you today, can I tell you that nobody understands what it's like to be on the margins or what it's like to be outside like Jesus. He was born to a virgin poor girl. In other words, she had no resources and really no capacity to get any resources. He was born in Bethlehem, a nothing town. It's known for sheep. He was raised in a town called Nazareth. There was a saying in Jesus' day, what good can come from Nazareth? There's a reason that saying existed. It was a nothing place. He spent time with, he associated with cripples and beggars and the blind and the mute and the deaf and the paralyzed and the possessed and the prostitutes. He spent time with women and children, people who had no power. All the crowds that were around him were people who were poor, who were weak. He was rejected. He was rejected by the very creation he created. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that in him and through him and for him, all things are created. The very things that he created rejected him. The very tree that he created was used to make the cross that he would be put on. He was rejected by his friends, by the disciples. He was rejected by Jews and Gentiles. He's rejected by all of humanity and eventually he was rejected even by his father who turned his face away from him. Some of us are in a spot where we're struggling. Like, do people, does anybody really see me? And I want to tell you today, in a world of competition that says that we've got to push everybody else down so that we can be elevated, that we need to fight to get to the middle, that our job is to compare ourselves to everybody else and try to get to the top. In a world that tells us that, I want to tell you today that Jesus chose the margins. He chose to be on the margins, not as a victim, not as his identity in that way. He chose to be on the margins in order to see everyone else. 
you have your Bibles there, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 4 with me. It tells us the story about the temptations of Jesus. And I want you to illustrate this. This is illustrated all throughout the Gospels if you pay attention. In the temptations, it's illustrated so perfectly that Jesus had every opportunity to move to the center of the places of power and popularity and influence in his day. The temptations are all about this. The very first temptation, you can read it there was for Jesus to take stones and turn them into bread. And certainly that would be a great thing if we could do that. You could serve so many people. But just imagine the wealth that you could accumulate if you could take stones and turn them to bread. A amount of wealth that would put him at the very center of all the places of power and influence in his day. And this, the second temptation, Jesus climb up to the top of the temple, one of the highest places they would have known on earth, and jump down and let your angels rescue you. Can you imagine how viral he would have gone? Can you imagine the glory that would have come, that would have placed him right in the center of all the power and influence? And Jesus said, no, that is not for me. And the last temptation, the temptation of dominance, Satan said, I will give you, everything will be at your feet. You can dominate everything. You will be literally at the center of all the things this earth has to offer. And Jesus says, that story is not the real story. I choose, no, I choose to move to the margins so that I can see the people that are there. And what begins to happen if we begin to listen to this, if we begin to see this, in a world that says, if you're not first, you're last, Jesus says something different to you. Hear this today. Jesus says, stop, stop, rest. Jesus says, be you. I love you right where you are. You don't have to get your value from competing with anybody else. You don't have a value because you can accomplish something or because you're different or better, quote unquote, than somebody else. Your value comes just from being you. Something interesting happens when we stop playing this game of comparison and contrast. When Jesus chose to stop that game and said, I don't really care about it. I want to see people as unique and valued and loved. When we do that, the whole game loses its power. It really doesn't matter anymore. And when you start seeing it, all of a sudden you can't not see it. And you can't stop at seeing all these people trying so hard to be valued by their accomplishments, to compare themselves to everybody else, to get to the middle, to get to the top, whatever you want to call it. And what we begin to see is that Jesus models for us this way of saying that whole thing is corrupt. It's broken. It doesn't work. Now, this is hard for most of us in this room because most of us in this room are actually in, in some way. We, you're talented and smart. You've achieved things. You're beautiful. You're gifted. And if we're honest for a minute, many of us have a lot of pride in what we've accomplished. The grades we get, the spot we get on the team, the role we play in our group, our music group, or whatever else it is. You've been told, achieve, 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 and you should take pride in that. So it's hard for us to step away from our identity of a pride in our achievement. Some of us are proud of the things we have. Some of us just know we have more and nicer things than everybody else. I got better shoes than that guy. I got a better car than that guy. I'm going to have a better job than that person. I'm going to make a million more dollars in my life than those people. So I will be better. And we begin to take pride in what we have. And some of us, if we're honest, take pride in the friendships we have. Who's in my phone? Who do I have contact to? Have you seen who I'm dating? Have you seen who hangs around with me? And so for many of us, there are groups that we are in, but Jesus is calling us to a different way. Hear this now. Jesus is calling us to surrender to a life of humility and service and love. So I need to apologize to you. And I don't really have the right to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to apologize on behalf of evangelical Christianity. And I'm going to apologize for a minute for some of the words I've heard uttered on this very stage. And I'm sorry. And sometimes the, the lie that we've told you is this, 
that your job as a young Christian of talent and intelligence is to work really hard and get to the middle, to be an insider in whatever it is you want to do so that you can influence things for Christianity. And I'm going to get here to just tell you today, that's a lie because the game is corrupt. We've told you if you can be an insider in Hollywood or an insider in Washington, D.C., or an insider in corporate America, wherever it might be, that somehow you'll be able to influence things for Jesus. But here's what I'm telling you. The game is corrupt and the game corrupts. And when you play the comparison and contrast game, no matter where you wind up in it, it just falls apart. It leaves you empty and alone, and it's not the way of Jesus. But what Jesus begins to call us to is something different. Steve Deneff said it from this stage a few weeks ago during our revival really well. He said, you can't exalt Jesus Christ and yourself. He said, you have to choose who's going to be famous at the end of your life, and it can't be both. And some of us, if we're honest, we might have good hearts and we might mean well, but we've been caught up in this story that says our job is to compare ourselves to everybody else. And our job is to compete with one another and to, to get to the middle, to get inside whatever group we care about. And what we haven't realized is what we've done in the midst of that process is begin to isolate ourselves by breaking relationship and pushing and pushing further and further people away. So what does it take? Really simple. It takes surrender. I think some people in this room are pretty tired of being lonely. I think some people in this room are tired of playing this game. We feel like we always got to look around. And to be honest, if we're playing it very well at all, it's exhausting. Social media is built on this whole premise that we just compare ourselves. And so we scroll and we scroll and our anxiety goes up and up and we start to worry about tomorrow and we worry about what job we're going to have and we stop being present. We stop seeing that we are loved and valued. We stop in the place where we can actually begin to see that other people are unique and loved and valued and we just compare and we compete and we play this game. And so if you're tired of this, like I think some of us are in this room, here it is really simple. You don't get to earn any of this. You don't get to achieve any of this. What you get to do is surrender. And what happens in the surrender is you find incredible freedom. Because at that point, it's not about you anymore. So what do you surrender? You surrender your pride. You surrender your power, your positions. Surrender the ladder that you might climb. You surrender the positions of authority that you might one day get. Some of you, I believe with all my heart, Jesus is asking you to surrender a career that might make you millions and millions of dollars for something that God would call you into instead. It means we surrender our desire for control. We surrender our strengths and our weaknesses that we'd be willing to surrender everything. See, we have a little bit of a problem in Christianity. And, and I understand where it comes from, but we've fallen in love with the resurrected and glorified Jesus, as we should. Don't mishear me. But we've forgotten what it takes for Jesus to be resurrected and glorified, which was he humbled himself. We just read it in Philippians chapter two. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It starts with sacrifice. John chapter 3 says it really well. John the Baptist is saying it. Jesus must increase and we must become less and less important. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 starts like this. I urge you brothers and sisters, hear this, as if someone who loves you is just saying this to your life right now. I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world that tell you that you have to be in the middle, that you have to compare and compete. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. What we're talking about here is stepping into something that already exists, which is God's incredible love for you. If you're just willing to tell the world 
that this story that they've been telling is wrong. And so what am I asking you to do? Well, it's to surrender. And part of it starts right here. For some of us, we actually don't believe that we are loved and valued as we are. And I just want to tell you today that you don't have to do anything else. Right where you are, you are loved. Scripture tells us before the creation of the world, God chose you to be adopted into his family as his children, as a good father. And some of us in this room maybe believe that about everybody else, but I think some of us in this room don't really believe that about ourselves. And if that's you, I just want to say it right now. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved right where you are. You don't have to prove it. There's no accomplishment that you can make. There's nobody that you're going to achieve enough for. It's done. You're loved. And for some of us, we just need to rest in that. If that's where you are, I just want to invite you to accept this. So maybe for some of us in this room, this is all you needed to hear today. You are loved. And if that's you, I just want to challenge you, maybe invite you to come maybe at this altar, even right now, nobody cares about time or anything else, but maybe to come right here and just rest in the arms of Jesus, who's telling you, I love you. I see you. You matter. But for a bunch of us in this room, I think we understand what it's like to play this game of in and out, comparison, competition. And this is what I want to challenge you to do, is to look around the edges and see who else is there. And when you're not competing and comparing with each other, there's something magical happens. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody else. And you can begin to see people as unique and valuable right as they are. And all of a sudden, those groups, those things that everybody tells us matter, don't really matter anymore. And all of that begins to fall away. And all of that corruption that, that is there just doesn't matter to us anymore. And all of a sudden, we can begin to see things. I wonder what it would look like for a campus to maybe begin to live like this. We know that the very earliest church was, was famous. It was well-known. It made an influence on this world that has never been seen before. And whether you believe in Jesus, whether you have faith or not, or care about religious things, there is no doubting, sociologically speaking, that the earliest followers of Jesus transformed this world. And what they, how they transformed this world was not from great theology. It was not from knowing the Bible so super great. It was not from any of the things that they did except for one, which was they loved one another. And they were known and they stood out because why? Because they had people who didn't ever belong, who didn't fit with the same group that were spent time together and loved each other. There were rich people and poor people, athletes and non-athletes, musicians and non-musicians. There were people even from different political parties. Can you believe it? who loved each other and came together. Do you know what it looks, will look like if a campus like ours started to just say, we're not going to play the game anymore. We're just going to see and value people. I'll tell you one thing it will look like is this, hope. In a world that is so divided, all you have to do is look for two seconds at the news or whatever else. In a world that tells us we're defined by our divisions. If a campus came together under the banner of Jesus Christ and said, we see one another and we value one another and we just want to care for each other and love each other as Jesus loved us, as valued and unique. If we would actually see one another outside of our groupings, outside of our ideologies and our teams and our halls and our whatever else, I believe that God would transform this world through a campus like that. And I wonder what it would look like if you started living like that. Somebody who is loved and valued by Christ is somebody who doesn't have to play the game anymore. I wonder what it looked like. We're going to pray. And as we pray, the altars are obviously open. You feel free to come at any point. But some of you might need to be at a place where you just need to come and say to somebody else and say, I need your forgiveness because I've been playing this game with you. And to be honest, you may not have even known it, but I've been comparing and competing and talking bad about you. Maybe some of you have broken a relationship with other people in order to stay in the center of some group. I just want to say to you, this is a time and a place. Now is the time. 
Now is the time. Bow your heads and hearts with me. Gracious God, you are a God who loves us. In the midst of your love for us, we often lose sight. We believe a different story sometimes, a story that says that our value only comes with what we can achieve and accomplish and get done or from the stuff we have or the career we're going to get. God, I pray that you would challenge that today and invite us into a better story, a story that says that you love us and we are loved no matter what we do, no matter who's friends with us, no matter who we're dating, no matter anything else. God, I pray that you would challenge us to see the world around us, to see our neighbor, to see the people we pass on the sidewalk, see the people in the cafeteria maybe sitting by themselves, just to go and see them, love them, see them as unique and valued. Invite us to loving one another as you have loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. We sing with us. We actually find ourselves in. But first, we will step into Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in Appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. God, we do welcome you to this place. We just acknowledge that you are who you say you are. God, in the midst of our busyness, in the midst of all the things going on in our hearts and our minds, God, I pray that you would help us to be here. I pray that you would speak through me, and I pray that you would soften our hearts. And so we invite the true teacher, your Holy Spirit, to come and teach. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Yeah, so we're kind of, to help us see the kind of two stories that I think are contrasting themselves, to find the story that culture tells us that we're actually in. I, I was trying to think of, of something that would maybe all of us in this room have experienced, which is really difficult because we come from a wide variety of places and experiences. And I remembered that sort of misery loves company. And so what's something that would bring us, we all have experienced that may, maybe wasn't so great. Something that a lot of us maybe have repressed in some way, we've pushed down. And that's right, I'm talking about middle school. Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. So something begins to happen in our bodies when we reach middle school. No, this isn't that talk. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, this is going to be good. And others of you are like, no. Uh, if you've been around a long time, there will be no steps or ladders referenced in this message today. What does happen is when we're children, we kind of see ourselves as the center of the universe. And so when we're children, everything we think revolves around us. We are the center. We are everything. And then what begins to happen is when we reach around middle school age, something begins to change in our brain. I have a friend, he studies brains, and he talks about it like this. When you're a child, it's like you're in this room all by yourself, and it's great because everything is your way, and you might have a couple windows in your room, and in those windows, you can look out and maybe see your parents, maybe your friends, but that's pretty much it. And then what he says is when you reach about maybe halfway through fifth grade for girls, usually a little later for boys, what happens is it's like somebody starts opening all these windows and doors. And we start seeing all of these other people out there all around us. And you guys probably remember this to some degree if you haven't repressed it too far. And part of what happens is we start seeing everybody else and we start noticing things about them. And then what we do is we start comparing ourselves to everybody else. So it sort of looks like this. We start looking around and we say, oh, that person's taller than me. I wish I was maybe a little taller. Oh, that person's faster than me on the playground. I wish I was faster. 
That person can sing better. That person is more intelligent than me or does better on quizzes or whatever else it is. And so we do this comparison and competition thing. And what we're told very quickly is that what matters most is that we be in the in group, right? That there's a group of people that have influence and have power and have resources and there's honor there. And what we want, whether we even realized it before this or not, what we want is to be inside the in-group. And then, of course, if there's an in-group, there also has to be an out-group, right? People that are on the margins. And so what we begin to see is most of us, we begin to realize around middle school that there's people inside the group and then there's people outside the group. And for most of us, we wind up being on the margins. We're on the outside. We don't feel like we fit in. We begin to recognize that we don't have what it takes to be like those people. And so we're told we should want to be in and we should do everything we can to get in. But the reality is most of us find ourselves out. And then to add to the sort of trouble of middle school age is this. We begin to realize that there's more than one group. There's maybe a group of athletes that I want to be part of. And then there's a group of academics I want to be a part of. Maybe a group of musicians. And all of a sudden I realize that not only can I not be in one group, there's a whole bunch of groups and I'm out of all of those groups. And so it feels like we're alone. It feels lonely. It feels like we're isolated. It feels like nobody else really gets us. And so we're trying to play this game of competition and comparison. Now I'm going to tell you a secret. It's not really a secret. You already know it, but I just want to make sure we're clear that this game of who's inside and who's outside the group, who's, who's in the center and who's on the margins, that game doesn't end at middle school, does it? Keeps going. In fact, throughout all of history, people have done all kinds of things, terrible things to one another, from racism to war and so forth, because some of them wanted to be in and some of them didn't want others to be inside the group. And so they've done all kinds of things throughout history to sort of keep that from happening. And then what we begin to see is all of us are in this place where we're trying to get into the middle. I have a friend who's a migrant during the Korean War, and he talks about it like this. He says that there were groups of people who were trying to, to migrate from what we might now call North Korea to the South. And part of what happened in the midst of that war is they would bomb some of these people groups, these groups of people trying to move to somewhere where it was safe. And he says, as we were traveling in these big groups of people, when the bombing runs would start to happen, we would just cluster close together. And then he said, well, nobody told us this, there was nothing that was ever discussed, but instinctually we knew that we wanted to be in the center of the group. And so we would fight and claw our way, you can kind of picture this, into the middle of this cluster of people. And then as soon as we got to the middle, somebody else would begin to pull us and push us, and we wind up on the outside. And this is exactly what it feels like for most of us. We feel like we're always trying to get into the inside of whatever group. And the reality is we're never quite there and we're always pulled away and pulled out. And so we feel lonely and isolated. A recent study from Boston University said that college students in the United States right now, two-thirds of all college students struggle with feelings of loneliness and feeling isolated. All-time highs. And in case that perhaps maybe we think, well, that's, that's at Boston University or, or where they're talking about all over the U.S., maybe state schools, that's not here at Asbury. We have our groups too, don't we? Now, there's nothing wrong inherently with having a group of people, but what happens is for most of us, what happens is we begin to focus inward and we use those groups to begin to compete and to compare ourselves with everybody else. So we have groups like we have dorms like Johnson and Trustees and Kresge and GC and Aldersgate and Commuters, and we have all of that. And we have halls on, on our dorms and we have certain identity that come with that. And we know though, here's the thing, even here at Asbury, 
that in the midst of those groups, there are people who are insiders and then there are people who are on the margins. So whether you're an athlete or a non-athlete, whether you're part of a specific team or not, you know what it's like when there are insiders and you don't feel like you're an insider. Whether you have a long email signature or whether you're part of student congress or something, or whether you are a media comm major, an equine major, or anything in between, whatever it might be, we have these groups and we often find ourselves trying to get to the inside. We start looking around and comparing and competing and comparing and competing. And so we're lonely and isolated, which leads to this question. What if it doesn't have to be that way? What if this story that culture tells us that we have to fight to be inside, that we always should be comparing ourselves, that we always should be competing? What if that story isn't actually right? Do we really have to play that game? Which brings us to Jesus. <laughs> Some of you in here might say, you know what? I don't really have faith in Jesus. I don't really care about that. Stay with me for one minute. Because I want to talk with you just for a moment, not about the church, not about formal Christianity, not about Asbury. I just want to talk about the person of Jesus. And here's one of the things that's interesting. For thousands of years, people of faith and non-faith have been fascinated with this person of Jesus because he has refused to play the game. He's refused to value people by whether they're inside or outside the group. You can look at this throughout history. People have been fascinated by Jesus' choice. We just read in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus tells us that he chose, he was in heaven, and he chose to move away from that to the margins, to where we are out of love. Scripture tells us this over and over again. So if you do feel lonely today, and I have a hunch, no, I know that some of us in this room feel lonely and isolated on the outside. If that's you today, can I tell you that nobody understands what it's like to be on the margins or what it's like to be outside like Jesus. He was born to a virgin poor girl. In other words, she had no resources and really no capacity to get any resources. He was born in Bethlehem, a nothing town. It's known for sheep. He was raised in a town called Nazareth. There was a saying in Jesus' day, what good can come from Nazareth? There's a reason that saying existed. It was a nothing place. He spent time with, he associated with cripples and beggars and the blind and the mute and the deaf and the paralyzed and the possessed and the prostitutes. He spent time with women and children, people who had no power. All the crowds that were around him were people who were poor, who were weak. He was rejected. He was rejected by the very creation he created. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that in him and through him and for him, all things are created. The very things that he created rejected him. The very tree that he created was used to make the cross that he would be put on. He was rejected by his friends, by the disciples, rejected by Jews and Gentiles. He's rejected by all of humanity and eventually he was rejected even by his father who turned his face away from him. Some of us are in a spot where we're struggling. Like, do people, does anybody really see me? And I want to tell you today, in a world of competition that says that we've got to push everybody else down so that we can be elevated, that we need to fight to get to the middle, that our job is to compare ourselves to everybody else and try to get to the top. In a world that tells us that, I want to tell you today that Jesus chose the margins. He chose to be on the margins, not as a victim, not as his identity in that way. He chose to be on the margins in order to see everyone else. If you have your Bibles there, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 4 with me. It tells us the story about the temptations of Jesus. And I want you to illustrate this. This is illustrated all throughout the Gospels if you pay attention. In the temptations, it's illustrated so perfectly that Jesus had every opportunity 
to move to the center of the places of power and popularity and influence in his day. The temptations are all about this. The very first temptation, you can read it there, was for Jesus to take stones and turn them into bread. And certainly that would be a great thing if we could do that. You could serve so many people. But just imagine the wealth that you could accumulate if you could take stones and turn them to bread. A amount of wealth that would put him at the very center of all the places of power and influence in his day. And this, the second temptation, Jesus climb up to the top of the temple, one of the highest places they would have known on earth, and jump down and let your angels rescue you. Can you imagine how viral he would have gone? Can you imagine the glory that would have come, that would have placed him right in the center of all the power and influence? And Jesus said, no, that is not for me. And the last temptation, the temptation of dominance, Satan said, I will give you, everything will be at your feet. You can dominate everything. You will be literally at the center of all the things this earth has to offer. And Jesus says, that story is not the real story. I choose, no, I choose to move to the margins so that I can see the people that are there. And what begins to happen if we begin to listen to this, if we begin to see this, in a world that says, if you're not first, you're last, Jesus says something different to you. Hear this today. Jesus says, stop, stop, rest. Jesus says, be you. I love you right where you are. You don't have to get your value from competing with anybody else. You don't have a value because you can accomplish something or because you're different or better, quote unquote, than somebody else. Your value comes just from being you. Something interesting happens when we stop playing this game of comparison and contrast. When Jesus chose to stop that game and said, I don't really care about it. I want to see people as unique and valued and loved. When we do that, the whole game loses its power. It really doesn't matter anymore. And when you start seeing it, all of a sudden you can't not see it. And you can't stop but seeing all these people trying so hard to be valued by their accomplishments, to compare themselves to everybody else, to get to the middle, to get to the top, whatever you want to call it. And what we begin to see is that Jesus models for us this way of saying that whole thing is corrupt. It's broken. It doesn't work. Now, this is hard for most of us in this room because most of us in this room are actually in, in some way. We, you're talented and smart. You've achieved things. You're beautiful. You're gifted. And if we're honest for a minute, many of us have a lot of pride in what we've accomplished. The grades we get, the spot we get on the team, the role we play in our group, our music group, or whatever else it is. You've been told, achieve, 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 and you should take pride in that. So it's hard for us to step away from our identity of a pride in our achievements. Some of us are proud of the things we have. Some of us just know we have more and nicer things than everybody else. I got better shoes than that guy. I got a better car than that guy. I'm going to have a better job than that person. I'm going to make a million more dollars in my life than those people. So I will be better. And we begin to take pride in what we have. And some of us, if we're honest, take pride in the friendships we have. Who's in my phone? Who do I have contact to? Have you seen who I'm dating? Have you seen who hangs around with me? And so for many of us, there are groups that we are in, but Jesus is calling us to a different way. Hear this now. Jesus is calling us to surrender to a life of humility and service and love. So I need to apologize to you. And I don't really have the right to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to apologize on behalf of evangelical Christianity. And I'm going to apologize for a minute for some of the words I've heard uttered on this very stage. And I'm sorry. And sometimes the, the lie that we've told you is this, that your job as a young Christian of talent and intelligence is to work really hard and get to the middle, to be an insider in whatever it is you want to do so that you can influence things for Christianity. And I'm going to get here to just tell you today, that's a lie. 
because the game is corrupt. We've told you if you can be an insider in Hollywood or an insider in Washington, D.C., or an insider in corporate America, wherever it might be, that somehow you'll be able to influence things for Jesus. But here's what I'm telling you. The game is corrupt and the game corrupts. And when you play the comparison and contrast game, no matter where you wind up in it, it just falls apart. It leaves you empty and alone. And it's not the way of Jesus. But what Jesus begins to call us to is something different. Steve Deneff said it from this stage a few weeks ago during our revival really well. He said, you can't exalt Jesus Christ and yourself. He said, you have to choose who's going to be famous at the end of your life. And it can't be both. And some of us, if we're honest, we might have good hearts and we might mean well, but we've been caught up in this story that says our job is to compare ourselves to everybody else. And our job is to compete with one another and to, to get to the middle, to get inside whatever group we care about. And what we haven't realized is what we've done in the midst of that process is begin to isolate ourselves by breaking relationship and pushing and pushing further and further people away. So what does it take? Really simple. It takes surrender. I think some people in this room are pretty tired of being lonely. I think some people in this room are tired of playing this game. We feel like we always got to look around. And to be honest, if we're playing it very well at all, it's exhausting. Social media is built on this whole premise that we just compare ourselves. And so we scroll and we scroll and our anxiety goes up and up and we start to worry about tomorrow and we worry about what job we're going to have and we stop being present. We stop seeing that we are loved and valued. We stop in the place where we can actually begin to see that other people are unique and loved and valued and we just compare and we compete and we play this game. And so if you're tired of this, like I think some of us are in this room, here it is really simple. You don't get to earn any of this. You don't get to achieve any of this. What you get to do is surrender. And what happens in the surrender is you find incredible freedom. Because at that point, it's not about you anymore. So what do you surrender? You surrender your pride. You surrender your power, your positions. Surrender the ladder that you might climb. You surrender the positions of authority that you might one day get. Some of you, I believe with all my heart, Jesus is asking you to surrender a career that might make you millions and millions of dollars for something that God would call you into instead. It means we surrender our desire for control. We surrender our strengths and our weaknesses that we'd be willing to surrender everything. See, we have a little bit of a problem in Christianity. And, and I understand where it comes from, but we've fallen in love with the resurrected and glorified Jesus, as we should. Don't mishear me. But we've forgotten what it takes for Jesus to be resurrected and glorified, which was he humbled himself. We just read it in Philippians chapter two. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It starts with sacrifice. John chapter three says it really well. John the Baptist is saying it. Jesus must increase and we must become less and less important. Romans chapter 12 verses one and two starts like this. I urge you brothers and sisters, hear this as if someone who loves you is just saying this to your life right now. I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world that tell you that you have to be in the middle, that you have to compare and compete. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. What we're talking about here is stepping into something that already exists, which is God's incredible love for you. If you're just willing to tell the world that this story that they've been telling is wrong. And so what am I asking you to do? Well, it's to surrender. And part of it starts right here. For some of us, we actually don't believe that we are loved and valued as we are. 
And I just want to tell you today that you don't have to do anything else. Right where you are, you are loved. Scripture tells us before the creation of the world, God chose you to be adopted into his family as his children, as a good father. And some of us in this room maybe believe that about everybody else, but I think some of us in this room don't really believe that about ourselves. And if that's you, I just want to say it right now. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved right where you are. You don't have to prove it. There's no accomplishment that you can make. There's nobody that you're going to achieve enough for. It's done. You're loved. And for some of us, we just need to rest in that. If that's where you are, I just want to invite you to accept this. So maybe for some of us in this room, this is all you needed to hear today. You are loved. And if that's you, I just want to challenge you, maybe invite you to come maybe at this altar, even right now, nobody cares about time or anything else, but maybe to come right here and just rest in the arms of Jesus, who's telling you, I love you. I see you. You matter. But for a bunch of us in this room, I think we understand what it's like to play this game of in and out, comparison, competition. And this is what I want to challenge you to do, is to look around the edges and see who else is there. And when you're not competing and comparing with each other, then something magical happens. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody else. And you can begin to see people as unique and valuable right as they are. And all of a sudden, those groups, those things that everybody tells us matter, don't really matter anymore. And all of that begins to fall away. And all of that corruption that, that is there just doesn't matter to us anymore. And all of a sudden, we can begin to see things. I wonder what it would look like for a campus to maybe begin to live like this. We know that the very earliest church was, was famous. It was well-known. It made an influence on this world that has never been seen before. And whether you believe in Jesus, whether you have faith or not, or care about religious things, there is no doubting, sociologically speaking, that the earliest followers of Jesus transformed this world. And what they, how they transformed this world was not from great theology. It was not from knowing the Bible so super great. It was not from any of the things that they did except for one, which was they loved one another. And they were known and they stood out because why? Because they had people who didn't ever belong, who didn't fit with the same group that were spent time together and loved each other. There were rich people and poor people, athletes and non-athletes, musicians and non-musicians. There were people even from different political parties, can you believe it, who loved each other and came together. Do you know what it looks, will look like if a campus like ours started to just say, we're not going to play the game anymore. We're just going to see and value people. I'll tell you one thing it will look like is this, hope. In a world that is so divided, all you have to do is look for two seconds at the news or whatever else. In a world that tells us we're defined by our divisions. If a campus came together under the banner of Jesus Christ and said, we see one another and we value one another and we just want to care for each other and love each other as Jesus loved us, as valued and unique. If we would actually see one another outside of our groupings, outside of our ideologies and our teams and our halls and our whatever else. I believe that God would transform this world through a campus like that. And I wonder what it would look like if you started living like that. Somebody who is loved and valued by Christ is somebody who doesn't have to play the game anymore. I wonder what it would look like. We're going to pray. And as we pray, the altars are obviously open. You feel free to come at any point. But some of you might need to be at a place where you just need to come and say, to somebody else and say, I need your forgiveness because I've been playing this game with you. And to be honest, you may not have even known it, but I've been comparing and competing and talking bad about you. Maybe some of you have broken a relationship with other people in order to stay in the center of some group. I just want to say to you, this is a time and a place. Now is the time. Now is the time. Bow your heads and hearts with me. Gracious God, you are a God who loves us. In the midst of your love for us, we often lose sight. 
We believe a different story. Sometimes a story that says that our value only comes with what we can achieve and accomplish and get done or from the stuff we have or the career we're going to get. God, I pray that you would challenge that today and invite us into a better story, a story that says that you love us and we are loved no matter what we do, no matter who's friends with us, no matter who we're dating, no matter anything else. God, I pray that you would challenge us to see the world around us, to see our neighbor, see the people we pass on the sidewalk, see the people in the cafeteria maybe sitting by themselves, just to go and see them, love them, see them as unique and valued. Invite us to loving one another as you have loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. We sing with us.